Well, good morning, brothers and sisters, friends. So good to see you. Um, welcome back, 20, 2024. Crazy. Um, if you have your, your Bibles, I invite you to go ahead and turn back to the Old Testament, further than what we were the last few weeks in Isaiah, back to, all the way back to Exodus. And we are back in uh, Exodus. We're going to dive right back into our our study, and we're going to begin reading in Exodus 19 in just uh, a moment. Again, I do hope that you had a wonderful Christmas and a wonderful New Year. I know that our family, my family, certainly, certainly did. But now that we are in this new year, as we heard last week, we still have so much to look forward to. So thank you to our brother who encouraged us with that message. And as we look back to what God has done, not only last year, but in previous years here at Sovereign Grace, but we have so much to look forward to in, in the future until Christ comes back. Um, so thank you, brother, for that. Today marks in Exodus 19, as we start Exodus 19, the, the 40th message in the book of Exodus. And if you have any familiarity with Exodus... Uh, then you'll know that chapter 19, when we get to chapter 19, that there is a major transition that takes place uh, in, in that book. In chapters 1 through 18, we have, um, we have told to us this, this great story, this great narrative of, of the exodus of God's people out of Egypt. It begins there in, in chapter 1 with the family of Israel coming to Egypt, um, not as a nation, but coming there as a people that needs to be provided for. And God and his providence provides for his people through Egypt, but soon they are enslaved by their once providers. Then we hear of the baby that was born and preserved to be, deli to be the deliverer of God's people out of slavery. And as that man grew up, he grew up in the family of Pharaoh and then is banished from Egypt to live in the wilderness. And then in chapter 3, the Lord God calls this man, Moses, to the burning bush. And he calls Moses to go back to Egypt and to lead his people out of slavery. And as you might remember, reluctantly he goes to a reluctant people that are reluctant to listen to God's word and to follow. But as it goes, to say the least, the Lord God, through the strong arm of the Lord, he humbles Egypt. He humbles Egypt with this powerful nation, the most powerful nation at the time, with these ten signs. And he delivers his people out of the hands of Pharaoh. The judgment of God comes upon the Egyptian, we see the judgment waters of the Red Sea as God's people cross through the Red Sea. And then in chapters 15 through 17, the people are tested in the wilderness to put their faith and trust in the Lord God who had just delivered them. But their thirst, their hunger, and their fear of man proved to be stronger. The weakness of their hearts has proved there than their faith. So each time the Lord provided and still delivered them in each of those times. And then concluding in chapter 18, we see the narrative of the family reunion when Jethro 
comes to Moses, Moses' father-in-law, and he hears the greatness of the Lord. And here's Jethro, a Midianite, a man of the nations, a priest of other, other gods. He rejoices and he worships this God that has just delivered Israel. Again, Jethro, in a sense, becomes the, the prototype, the model of all the purposes that the Lord God is doing with his people and covenanting with them with Abraham, with Abraham that he would, they would be a blessing among the nations. And we soon will see how that covenant will extend, uh, continue to extend through Israel. And now in the next section, as we get to chapters 19 to 24, we are beginning what is often called the book of the covenant. In fact, that's what Moses calls it in chapter 24, verse 7. And then we see the, the supplement of the book of covenant in Deuteronomy. Now for just literary structure's sake, if you want to know for the rest of the book, chapters 25 through 40 make up the third section of Exodus, and it is on the worship of God, the right worship of God, and the, through the, uh, the construction of the ark and the, the tabernacle, etc., and then the recognition of a divine kingship of, of God. And so we're getting into some really important stuff as we start chapter 19. We're going to talk about covenants. In fact, as Peter Gentry and Stephen Wellam said about covenants, he said, you cannot fully understand Scripture and correctly draw theological conclusions without grasping how all the biblical covenants unfold across time and their end and fulfillment in Christ. Covenants within the Bible are not the central theme to Scripture. The central theme in Scripture is the gospel. It is, it is Christ. But they serve as a backbone to the Bible. And to accurately, they help us to accurately put the whole Bible story together so that we can understand the Scriptures. And as well, understand all the covenants as they are working together. Because in the covenants, starting at the, the Adamic covenant, Adam, through the Davidic covenant, there is unfolding God's plan through uh, God's plan from the old to the new. And God's plan then terminates, it finds its telos, it culminates in Christ. And our triune God is showing us the continuity of Scripture for one plan of salvation and redemption. And we discover that plan as we trace salvation back through each and every covenant. As they build progressively, in a sense, upon each other. Now we'll talk more about covenants over the next few weeks. We'll talk a little bit more about that today, but we'll progressively build as we go. But chapter 19 is the introduction, in a sense, to the Mosaic Covenant. You see, understand that chapter 20 is the beginning of the, the Ten Words, or the, the Ten Commandments in chapter 20. So let's look at chapter 19, and let's begin reading in verse 1. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out to the land of Egypt, 
on that day, they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. And there Israel encamped before the mountain. While Moses went up to God, the Lord God called him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what, I've done, what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. And now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. This is the word of the Lord, and may his Holy Spirit move in our hearts to hear and to see his holy, inspired, inerrant word for his glory and for our joy. Amen. So beginning here, what we just read is setting up not only for us, but in particular within history, for God's people to hear and to understand the law of God. Within the historical narrative of Exodus, we hear within the setting of space and time the divine purposes of the Mosaic covenants, the law. The whole Exodus, so far, with its amazing stories of God's deliverance that gives hope to all of those who are captive and enslaved to sin, the hope of freedom that shows us that Yahweh God is mighty to save and that he will accomplish the salvation of his people. He is powerful. He is mighty. He is merciful. He is kind. He is loving. He is gracious. And for us Christians, as we've been looking at the Exodus story, which is one of the clearest pictures of the gospel in the Old Testament, because in it we see God's first great act of redemption, probably the second. I think the first would probably be in, in uh, Genesis chapter 3. But a massive story of, of God's great act of redemption. And in particular, as we hone in on the Passover and the Passover lamb, it points a spotlight out directly to the cross. And as we've been saying to as we've been saying throughout in all these messages, the, the main point, the theme of Exodus has been able to show us the glory of God in the salvation of his people. God is glorified in saving his people. And so as the Christian church, we've been walking through Exodus because it points us not only to the gospel, not only laying out for us this, this pattern of redemption and salvation, this idea of substitution that flows throughout the rest of the Bible, the same pattern by which we have been saved, that we have been saved by the grace of God to the glory of God. Exodus is not about man, it's not about Israel, it's not about Moses, but at its core, 
It is deeply a theological work about the Lord God Almighty. As he has worked throughout history to save his people for his own glory. And again, in that we see his mercy. We see his love. We see his holiness and his justice and his righteousness. We see his sovereignty. And in Exodus, our only hope is in our sovereign Lord who sends a deliverer. He is our only hope. That is the great theme of which we discovered back in December from the book of Isaiah. That our only hope is the Messiah, our deliverer. And our deliverer is leading us to the promised land. And now, turning to the page and the story where they're at the mountain, the mountain of God. There's this great, there's this great monument in a sense, monumental moment in a sense, because this is exactly what the Lord God said he was going to do. Moses was told, I'm going to bring you and the people back here. And the Lord God has done so. What a great achievement by the Lord. The Lord speaks to his people. Think about that. The Lord speaks to his people. And in that, as we just read in, in, in chapter 19, in the very beginning there, there is this defining of a relationship of what it means to be in relationship with this holy God. What, what should come to the surface before us as we, as, we, as we go through this and as we start these next couple chapters of the, the book of the covenant, what should come to the surface here in chapter 19 and what we have just read is the grace of God, to the glory of God, to save his people to deliver his people from the oppression of slavery, to do what they could never, never, ever do. And so chapter 19, the Lord God takes his people there at the mountain that he drew them to, and he calls them to be his people. And he makes covenant with them. I believe our passage this morning clearly parallels not only teaching us about the Old Covenant, but it's paralleling and pointing to the New Covenant, in which we know the covenant that was inaugurated not by the blood of some Passover lamb, but the blood of the Lamb of God. And so there is this progressive building up in these covenants that, again, as I've said earlier, finds its end. It culminates in Christ. And not only do we understand that there's a continuity within scriptures from beginning to end, but we see the immutability of God. And he is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. That he never changes. And so I want you to see two main things this morning as we look at chapter 19. And first, I want you to see grace and gospel. 
Number two, I want you to see obedience and joy. The first thing I want you to see again in our text is grace and gospel. When we look to verse 1 and 2, we get that time and space, right? And this is a massively important event that's about to take place. Because this huge thing that takes place over these next couple chapters is what shapes this people forever, in a sense, right? It shapes them for, for, for such a long time. And we get this time, this third moon, which tells us very specifically the timing, about 50 days after Passover. And they come to this place. Right? This place now that's in the wilderness of Sinai. So not exactly in the promised land. They're still in the desert. In fact, you can Google uh, pictures of the desert in, in, in Sinai. And, and you can kind of look. And it is a, uh, a wasteland of a place in a sense. Maybe not to the people who live there. They wouldn't consider that. But it really is. It's just a desert and mountains and jaggedy. It is not the promised land. But God leads them into the wilderness of Sinai outer Rephraim, and they encamp before the mountain. Now, we, we don't know where this mountain is, but we do know it is the same mountain that the Lord God revealed himself earlier to Moses at the burning, at the burning bush. And again, this signals to us God keeping his promise to bring them to the mountain. And of course, we do not know exactly where the location of the mountain is. Some people think it's here. Some people think it's at other places. It's in the north or it's in the south. In fact, someone was uh, so uh, confident that they even built a monastery next to the mountain saying that this is, this is it, but who really knows? What's really important, though, is not the location. We do not want to be mesmerized by what is the mundane, but we want to catch what is actually truth, the indisputable evidence that the Lord God led his people to a real place in real time in history where they met the living God. And there at the mountain, just to give you some more timing, Israel stayed there for about 11 months. That's a long camping trip in the desert. And in that time, that is when they received the law of God. The Mosaic Covenant. You know, Bible-wise, that's Exodus 19 and onward, all the way through chapter 40. That's the whole book of Leviticus. That's Numbers through chapter 10. And you think about what the Lord is doing here. How important of a time this 11 months is. That so much of the Pentateuch, that so much of the Old Testament, that so much of the Bible is given to, to explain and unpack this covenant. That chronologically, it's only a year. Considering the last 18 chapters of Exodus has been, what, 90 years? 60 years, something like that? And so at this encampment for 11 months, Moses says he goes up the mountain, which is, by the way, something very important. Very important in itself because we understand not only that throughout this, these chapters, Moses is going to ascend and he's going to descend about seven times, three times 
in chapter 19, but it shows to us the, this vivid portrayal of the distance between God and man. And the necessity, not only of the transcendence of God, but because of the holiness of God and the transcendence of God, that man requires a mediator. Which emphasizes for us Christ. And so in this, we see a great miracle at work of God giving his word to his people that he would desire a relationship with his people, particularly a covenantal relationship with his people. And he does so here in chapter 19, I believe from the very beginning, telling us that this is grace and that he is a God of grace. And so the Lord God calls Moses up to the mountain. He calls out of the mountain. We don't get the explanation or the descriptions of the burning bush. This time it's just a voice that calls out of the mountain and it says, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, tell the people of Israel. God is giving his word. He says, you yourselves have seen what I did to, e to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Did you hear what the Lord is telling Moses to tell the people? He, first, he wants them to to remember. He wants them to remember. He wants them to remember judgment, doesn't he? He wants them to remember deliverance, and he wants them to remember drawing. Now you, he said, you saw it yourself. You, you saw what the Lord God has done to, to the Egyptians. And though we do not have time to recall it all, God sums it up in that one little statement of that God's judgment upon Egypt. And they're vividly going to remember the ugly, messy affair that judgment was. Right? We spent weeks going through every single one of the plagues and the Passover and the death of the firstborn children. And the Lord God wants them to remember his judgment. Yes, because of their deliverance from the oppressors, but I also believe that the Lord wants them to remember this judgment because this was a judgment that they too deserved. They were sinful. They were disobedient. They were grumblers. They were complainers. And what made the difference between Israel and Egypt was not how great Israel was. The difference was God's mercy. Brothers and sisters, the only difference between us and the world is the mercy of God. And God, what did he do for his people? He provided a sacrificial lamb. Why does the New Testament often remind us of the cross? Is it so that we can reflect as well as, a, as well as how ugly and how messy of affair that was? So we can think of all the blood and the breaking of, the, of his back and, the, and, the, and the, 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 the cuts in his back 
and the scourgings? Is, it, is that why God and the Word of God calls us to reflect on the cross? Is it to remember the pain of the sacrifice of Jesus? Is it to remember, of the, remember the torment and the torture? Is it just so that we would think about this particular ethic of sacrifice of a friend laying down his life for another? Or is it to recall or to remember something else within our hearts and within our minds? We have reduced it to an icon of jewelry, but the Scripture calls us Christians to remember the cross as a symbol of judgment. That the wrath of God that you deserved... was poured out on the Son of God. Remember the cross where my wrath was poured out on the Son of God, the the wrath that was deserved to you. Again, what's the difference between us and the world? The grace and mercy of God. Christ was our substitute. And if you think of the cross, think of the cross in that way. That it was divine judgment poured out. But through it, now the grace of God is given to you. Not only to remember the death of the Son of God, but to remember the grace of God. Remember what I did to the Egyptians. And as the Lord tells them to remember what they did there, but he also tells them this, I bore you on eagles' wings. This is how I led you out of the land. The cloud and the pillar of fire, how I led you every step of the way. Isn't that an amazing image? We think of J.R.R. Tolkien's The Hobbit, The Lord of the Rings, where I think when I finally got through them, I remember thinking to myself, the real heroes in the story are the eagles. They show up at the right moment and at the right time. That when the The dwarves are in the tree, and fire's all around, and they're about to die. Who saves them but the eagles? When Gandalf is on the tower, with no hope, in prison, who saves him? The eagles. And he shows up, and they carry them to safety. And this is the picture of God's protective, nurturing care of his people, that he has brought them every step of the way out of Egypt. Like a a mother eagle who teaches their eaglets to fly. It's very interesting. When the mother knows that the eaglets are ready to fly, the mother actually kicks the little babies out of the nest. And as the eaglet is flying or falling, they're not flying, they're falling to the ground, they're feeling the wind and the air underneath their 
their wings. They're getting the, the feeling that, hey, gravity exists. They don't necessarily speak in them terms, of course. And of course, the mother knowing that pushing the eaglet out of the, out of the nest is probably going to end in disaster. The mother knows to swoop down at the last moment and to bore their eaglets and to pick them up and catch them before the last moment. And the picture is this to Israel when he says that I bore you on eagles' wings, that I brought you out of Egypt, and you have never been alone. You have been riding my back this whole time. You didn't have to mount a decades-long insurgency against Egypt to be set free. You didn't have to swim across or build a bridge or go around the Red Sea. No, I split the Red Sea for you to walk on dry land and the same waters of judgment crushed the Egyptians. I gave you water from the rock. I gave you bread from the dew. I gave you meat from the air. I delivered you from the hands of your enemies. I provided. Those are the eagle's wings. You know, Isaiah picks up on this illustration. As he not only looks back to the Lord's faithfulness to deliver them out of Egypt, but I believe he's looking forward and applies the same illustration that is coming. He says, but they will wait for the Lord, shall renew their strength. They shall mount up on eagles, wings of eagles, and they shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. The example of God's grace to his people to bore them up on eagles' wings. Brothers and sisters, we are only brothers and sisters because of the grace of God. And that grace has bore each and every one of us on eagles' wings. Is that not your experience? It certainly has been my experience. One way or another, we all have different stories in different places and how the Lord has saved us and redeemed us and delivered us from sin one way or another, but isn't that essentially together as the gospel speaks of the grace of God that it has bore us up on eagles' wings? Were we not all dead in our sin? Dead in our trespasses in sin, spiritually dead, and unable to make ourselves alive again, unable to deliver ourselves. We could not lift ourselves from that darkness. Literally and spiritually, like the eaglet falling out of the nest, we are falling to a certain and sure death. And yet, the grace of God. In John 15, 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you. I bore you 
up on eagle's wings. And I appointed you to go and to bear fruit, that your fruit should abide. It was the Lord who chose. It was the Lord who appointed. It is the Lord who who bore us, who drew us up out of the mire. And he brought us as he brought Israel to himself. Did he not do that for each and every one of us who are in Christ? Another Amazing verse, John 1, verse 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of of man, but of God. It is of the grace of God that has drawn us to himself. This point, I believe, here is God telling them of his grace in saving them. Right here in the Old Testament is grace. And it is so important that we understand clearly these verses, that we don't forget these verses when we get to the law. Don't forget what I have done for you. The judgment that I delivered you from. The drawing and the calling. This is so important for us. Because I believe that this sounds not only of the grace of God, but it sounds of the gospel. The gospel we understand of the the new covenant. And here, right here, at the, at the front end of the law is grace. That means that a salvation of works is not on the table. A salvation of works is not here. That was not the covenant with Moses. Because before anyone can say that we are saved by the law and by our law keeping, here is God, the Lord, clearly spelling out to them that salvation comes by grace alone, through faith alone. Christians, we struggle with what to do with the law. We don't know what to do with it. And so to many it becomes, well, that's what it used to be. That's what it used to be, but God changed it with Jesus, and now we are saved by grace. Well, the second part's correct. Yes, we are saved by by grace, but also this is the case within the Old Testament. The law was given then, as we see clearly here, as an expression of the grace of God. As he's drawing them into a relationship with himself. He has already saved them. 
In the New Testament, particularly the Apostle Paul, he, he clearly understands this, and he teaches us this idea about the law in the book of Romans. The law is put in this, in this frame and in this confines of the grace of God. Salvation and grace comes before the law. Our salvation is by grace alone. By grace you have been saved. And this is not of your doing. It is a gift of God, not of a result of works. But have we been saved and regenerated and transformed to not be in relationship with God? The answer to that is no. We have been saved to be in relationship with him. And as Ephesians 2 continues in verse 10, it says that the, the workmanship of Christ, of his deliverance of us and our regeneration and our reconciliation and our adoption displays to the world that we have been created in Christ for good works. And so that brings us to our second point. From at the beginning of the onset of this covenant, not only are we seeing grace and gospel, but we're seeing that as we are brought into relationship, we are seeing obedience and joy. There at the end of verse 4, it says, I brought you to myself. As I was just saying, salvation in itself, or, um, excuse me, salvation is never an end in itself. Salvation isn't this new freedom to find some new identity in yourself. That's what many would like to think it is. Salvation in the Lord brings us to something greater. And that is conformity to Christ, to the, to the likeness and the image of Christ. As our, as our brother prayed, no, there's nothing good in us but Christ. In the workmanship of Christ, and the salvation of Christ, the grace of God is not to leave you in yourself and in your sin and in your depravity to live in that, but to, to conform you from one degree of glory to the next into the image and likeness of our Savior. That's what salvation is accomplishing within us. And he's doing the same in Israel. To make Israel into his people. It's what has been his intent from all along, from Abraham all the way to here to Exodus. Especially when we saw a hint of this, I believe it was Exodus chapter 4, where Israel is called the firstborn son. And he defines this relationship by coming into covenant with them. And again, that covenant is built on salvation, the salvation of God by grace. Look at verse 5. The Lord says to them this, is now... Now, therefore, right, here's again, right, here's one of those great words. We think of this in the, the words of maybe like Paul. Paul says, therefore, a lot. 
And we understand that everything now he's about to say is built upon everything that he's just said, right? So this is that massive idea of the grace of God. Now, therefore, because I saved you, because of grace, I'm yelling because it's important, because of grace, if you indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be a kingdom of priests to me, a holy nation. And this is the, the proposed relationship to the people of a complete loyalty and obedience of Israel to the Lord their King. And in that obedience and following the Word of God comes the blessings of God. If you will obey my voice. If you will obey my word and keep my covenant. The covenant that he is about to give them. And the first thing I want you to see about this particular covenant is, is that this covenant is building upon the Abrahamic covenant. It's not a separate covenant. It's not those other covenants have failed and now there's a new one or there's distinct or different points in these covenants in which they're transitioning. No, they're building upon that. You can hear that within the promises that God says to his people that if they obey and they follow his covenants, that this is a covenant of grace. And grace is not conditional to our ability to be obedient, but it's based upon the sovereign will of God that has already saved them. And so now as Israel's obedience is demanded in this covenantal relationship, the motivation is the salvation that God has already done for his people. Remember what I have done. The conditional statement in verse 5 is the Lord telling his people of the privileged status that they have in this covenantal relationship. And in that relationship that Israel has, they have responsibilities. There is no such thing as a relationship without responsibilities. If there is no responsibilities, then there is no relationship. A husband has responsibilities to his wife. A wife has responsibilities to her husband. Israel is to have responsibilities to the Lord God. They are to be obedient to the word of God. Obedience, then, is demanded by the Scripture by those who know the joy of being saved. Romans chapter 6. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart. It's the heart that has changed here, right? To the standard of teaching, the word that has changed us and it is commands upon us to which you were committed. 
having been set free from sin, from having have become slaves to righteousness. Obedience comes from the heart that has been changed, that has been transformed by the grace of God, by the word of God. You are no longer slaves to sin. But as the Apostle Paul says here in Romans chapter 6, that you have become now slaves to righteousness. Obedience to the righteousness of Christ. And the righteousness that has been given to us has been imputed to us based upon the work of Christ. And that has transformed us then to become obedient to His righteous command. 1 John chapter 5, everyone who believes that Jesus is, is the Christ has been born of God. Right? And he says, there's the gospel, right? Faith. And everyone who loves the Father loves, loves whoever who has been born of him. We see the, the love of God and the love for the church and born of him, giving us the idea of regeneration, the, the new birth. John chapter 3. By this we know that we love the children of God. When we love God and obey His commands. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments. And His commandments are not burdensome. John is saying to you, the word of God is saying to us, you cannot be in relationship with God, you cannot say that you love God and reject his commands or hate his commands. I love you, Lord, but I despise your holiness. Those are not reconcilable ideas within the word of God. I do not care what liberal Christians may say. That is false. In fact, it is a lie from the pit of hell itself. It cannot be done. As it cannot be done in any other relationship. I cannot say that I love my wife, but I cannot stand her personality. You would say that I am a liar. And that I really do not love my wife. Many will say that the demands of obedience, even in the New Testament, even in the New Testament, that they are legalistic. That they are just a, a suggestion. That that is works, righteousness, salvation. We obey and God approves our salvation, right? Saying that this is what many believe. Faith coupled with our obedience does not save us. Hear me on that. Faith coupled with your obedience does not save you. It will never save you. Faith in the obedience of Christ is what saves you. Amen. 
saving faith, our faith, then is worked out in our obedience. In that relationship. The scriptures are very clear on this issue, but in verse 5, in the relationship with him that he's drawing us into, it says some pretty amazing things. It says that you will be my, my, my treasured possession among all the peoples. And this means something. This, this actually means something. Right? We, we like to use superlatives a lot. Like, um, man, that's the greatest thing I've ever seen in the world. That's the best thing I've ever seen. That's the coolest thing in all the world. We use superlatives like that to get the point across that, that that's a, a grand and gracious thing. But we really do not mean that it is the greatest or grandest thing in all the world. But when the Lord God himself says that this will be my treasured possession in all the world, he can say that with exact authority because he is the creator and sustainer of all the universe. So when he says it, he's not speaking in superlatives like us. He means it. He says, I have chose you to be my treasure. Now we, under, under, we know underneath that in the gospel that the choosing of us before the foundation of the world has been based upon the righteousness of Christ are being treasured by a possession of the Lord God is based upon him treasuring his own son and giving us now his righteousness. And when we have his righteousness, we become his treasured sons. As we say, didn't we sing that this morning? Treasured sons, right? Remember, did we sing that? Was that in we, when trials come? Precious daughter, treasured sons, right? Man, we sang that this morning. And then underneath this, this treasured possession are these other two statements. In verse 6, you shall be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And I want you to know that all three of these, they're not separate entities, but they're, they're working together to, to kind of describe the same thing, but they work in different ways, sort of like how, a, how surround sound works, right? So surround sound works in a way where you have a front speaker that's that's kind of projecting this audio that comes from the, the front of you. And then you have speakers off to your, your right that's giving you the audio that comes from the right and then to the, to the left. And these are three things. Although they're doing different, different audio projections, they're all saying kind of sort of the, the same thing of being this treasured possession. And this, this idea of treasure possession, it's not, it's not commonly used in Scripture, in, Hebrew, in, in the Hebrew, but it's used one time. I believe it was 1 Chronicles or 2 Chronicles. Uh, David uses it to describe his own personal treasures, his vault of gold and, and, and treasure. And so it's expressing this value. But, but this is not being used to, discuss, to talk about uh, a thing, but people. People, these people, this, his people are, is not a, a bar of gold that's stored off some way in some place in some vault somewhere. No, God's people have, are doing what? They're a, they're a light to the nations. As they live before the, the nations. And as, these, as this treasured possession, 
There is this, this idea, in a sense, in that language that's been used in other places that could describe to us that it is like, it's like how a, how a father is pleased in an obedient son. That's a treasure. That's, that's a treasure. And so this treasured people are to be obedient sons that are devoted to him. And like in the, and I think this is going from all the covenants, we see this make its way and be fulfilled in Christ. And the new covenant is in the Adamic covenant. Adam was created to represent the Lord in all creation. He was put in the garden to cultivate and exercise dominion as a son, as a treasured possession. And then there's Abraham who would represent God to the nations, and would be a blessing to all the nations. And then we see Israel, who as firstborn son, as we see that described to us in Exodus, now inherits the promises that were given to Abraham as sons. And now even spelled out more for us in that relationship, the divine purpose of, of this covenant that establishes, uh, that is established between God and Israel, what it means for them to be a treasured possession among all the peoples in the world and working in surround sound with that is they are to be a kingdom of priests this collection of people in a sense are priests and we, we, we will know in fact even in chapter 19 we'll know that there is a specific group of people who are called priests but as the nation, as a people, in a sense, they are to be priests of God. And why? What's the essential function of the priest? The priest was, is one that comes near to the Lord. They're the ones who are consecrated and devoted to the Lord. And again, back to the Adamic covenant, right? Adam acted as a priest in a sort of way between God and creation. Abraham acted in sort of a representative of the promise and the blessing between him and the, the nations. And now Israel, through this covenant, as a royal priesthood, the Lord is extending his rule through them as their firstborn, as his firstborn son, in a sense, to fulfill the promises and blessings to the nations, the promise that was given in the Abrahamic covenant. And ultimately, we are here because these, were, these promises have found its end in Jesus Christ, who is our prophet and our priest and our king. They are called to be a holy nation. So this is the other side of, of, the, of the, the stereo that's giving us another sound that works together. To be a holy nation, not just set apart not just set apart sometimes that's what we we think about holy is just being set apart but this is a set apart to be devoted it is a set apart to be devoted and that devotion then sets us apart from all other nations do you hear what the surround sound is saying you are to be my devoted sons because you are my treasured possession. 
a kingdom of priests, a holy nation that represents me and that I am using to fulfill my promises. Now, what do we do with all that? The first is this covenant is built upon other covenants. It's a covenant of grace. But second, the Lord is making a people for himself. A people that is a treasured possession, that is devoted to worship and serve him like priests. A people that is a holy nation. This covenant sets forth a, a pattern of a greater covenant that will come, the new covenant that is in Christ. And this, brothers and sisters, is what the Apostle Peter picks up on when he said, you are a chosen race. He's speaking to the church that you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. He's talking to Gentiles. The church mixed up with Gentiles and Jews. A holy nation, a people for his own possession. A treasured possession that you may do what? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into marvelous lights. Once you were not a people, but you are God's chosen people. Once you have not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Brothers and sisters, in this, in this passage right here, there's just not titles and rights now for us Christians to take for ourselves that we can stand up and be like, well, I'm a priest now. Or I'm holy now. But they are a responsibility within the relationship with our Lord because of the grace of Christ. We are obedient to the word of God by representing him like a royal priesthood. Like a royal priesthood. Like devoted sons. There are many questions we could ask of ourselves right now on this. Are you acting as a devoted son? Or is it more like the prodigal son wanting to leave or do your own thing or enjoying somewhat? Or I don't know. Maybe it's in your own righteousness of saying, well, I've always been here like the firstborn son. Like the eldest. Are we acting as priests, being obedient to the word of God? Peter is telling us this through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to tell us this amazing truth. And of course, I want you to understand, see, the thread that goes from that covenant to the new covenant. this new identity as a royal priesthood. 
that as the church, we are a treasured possession, a holy nation, as together we live by grace, by the work of the Holy Spirit, and in that there is joy. In that there is joy. And as we close this morning, I want to close, I want to leave you with this by by once again pulling that thread of grace from this covenant all the way to the end, almost, but pretty much almost all the way to the end. That in Revelation chapter 12, we see this narrative of the, the war that continues between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman take shape. As there's this woman who is about to give birth to a son. And then there's this description of the great dragon, the serpent. And this serpent is waiting for the birth of this son so that he could devour this child. The child is born and he is, he is the one that says the, that will rule the nations with a rod. And before he could be devoured, he was caught up with God to his throne. The woman then was led into the the wilderness on the earth, and that is where then the, the war against the dragon began with the angels. And they defeated him, and they casted him upon earth. And the dragon who was defeated then pursued the woman, and he pursued the people of God. Listen to this from Revelation 12. The woman was delivered. The woman was delivered on wings of eagles. And she was taken to a place where she could be nourished. The image there is precisely pointing us not only back to Isaiah 40, where Isaiah was looking back at Exodus 19, but also looking forward. And that image is to speak to us in such a way not only of the grace of God that has bore us out of sin and death on eagles' wings, but one day, as the church, as the, the seed of the serpent still seeks to devour, that we will soon be delivered once and for all. Because the final victory of our Savior, Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, will come back and conquer but until then, treasured possession of the Almighty God. May you be found faithful. May you be found holy and as a royal priesthood. And all of God's people said,